God has anointed a message for his people to hear. Amen? Amen. And I, I try to do this with my students, even in my little classroom over there. And every time we hold chapel, I say, this is anointed time. This is not like any other time. And as I'm standing in front of you, as I always believe, I believe God is going to do miracles throughout the whole message and after it's over. I believe that God's Word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And, you know, since we've just come back from our women's retreat, you know, people have been talking and God moved through every speaker, through every circumstance. And what amazed me at the end of Saturday night was how His Holy Spirit moved directly. With no person having to lay hands on anybody else, but God's Holy Spirit just moved and worked. And that's because God's Holy Spirit is the one who does it. And so I want us to believe this evening, I believe God has a very, you know, ordained message for this night, for this particular group of people. That's the way I've prayed. That's the way I believe. Do you believe that too? So let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Father, we thank you that you have planned and ordained the creation of this whole universe and the creation of every one of us in this room. And you planned, Father, and ordained the pathway of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. Jesus, the Son, we thank you because you came and gave your life willingly and defeated death and rose from the tomb that we might live. And so, Jesus, the Son, we thank you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you this evening because you are the one who remains on this earth and strives with mankind that we might not be lost. You, Holy Spirit, are the one who comes this evening to comfort us and to prick our hearts and to bring us closer to God. So we thank you, Holy Spirit. We love you, God, three in one. And this evening we pray in Jesus' name that every one of our hearts would be broken. That's what I prayed this afternoon. God, break my heart. God, break the heart of everyone in this room that our hearts might be open and ready to receive the comfort we need and the conviction that we need. Lord, you always seem to work in paradoxical ways. And I believe tonight there are people in this room who need convicted. And I believe tonight that some of those very same people are the ones who need comforted. And isn't it amazing that in your conviction, Holy Spirit, we do find comfort. God, we come and we ask that you meet our needs because you are the only one who can. May Jesus be lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this would have a long title if I were to give it a title, although I'm not big on titles. So let me say that I have two main points to share with you. Number one, the sufficiency of belief in Jesus Christ to save us from sure judgment the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save us from sure judgment and the sufficiency of belief in Jesus Christ to live the life God requires you to live. Now, if there's one thing that I've found in years of ministry with the body of Christ, young and old, it's this. So many people are walking around saying, why am I not living the victorious, God-honoring life I feel in my heart I'm supposed to live? Do you agree that's a problem? We say we love Jesus and we come to church, but when the rubber meets the road and we're living life on an everyday basis, we put our head on the pillow at night and we say, what happened? Why am I not living the life that I believe God requires? Why am I not defeating the sin and the thought patterns in my life? that I feel I should be. And I want to talk to you tonight about the sufficiency of belief in Jesus Christ to live the life that God requires of you. But the part you're going to love about this is, I'm not going to take this from, new, some, from some New Testament scripture. 
And I got so much feedback after my Abraham message that people were excited to find that God is alive and well in the Old Testament. Imagine that! Well, He is. And so God has laid it on my heart to share with you from the historical account. I don't like to call it the story because that makes it seem like it's a fairy tale. From the historical account of Noah's life and the flood, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to enable you to live as God wants you to live. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. I have to tell you, I'm not good with, with time frames. Like if you ask me when was the women's retreat, I don't know. Was it a month ago? A week ago? I don't know. But I know that it happened and it was really, really good. I'm not good with times. I'm good with events, okay? And I don't remember how long ago this was, but one day, some years ago, I was reading through the account of Noah's Ark and God like dropped a bomb on me and showed me something that I have never forgotten that has changed my life in the story of Noah and the flood. And I'm going to come to that, but it's going to come more towards the end of the message. So you hold on. I think this is going to set some of you free when you figure out what happens here. But Genesis chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. You know the story, but let's pick out some of these verses. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if I were to ask the average Christian person, the average Christian person, why did God flood the earth in Noah's day? What would they say? They would say because the whole world was wicked, evil, bad. I say, okay, now buy that. Why isn't God flooding the earth today? Because the whole earth is wicked, evil, bad. And if I were to ask the average person on the street or even the average Christian, why did God save Noah and his family and kill everybody else? I have actually done that with Christian school students. And what I found is the average answer is this. Because Noah was a good man. No. Mm, Wrong answer. But that's what we think. And I want to tell you that I believe there are many people sitting in this room tonight. I know it is true. Satan uses as his biggest weapon against you a feeling of inadequacy. I'm not good. Yeah, you're not. Neither am I. And in fact, Noah was not a good man the way we're thinking of the word good. And I believe if Jesus could truly get a hold of our hearts and help us to see who we are in Christ, we would stop being inhibited by our own feelings of inadequacy. Now, I cannot tell you, and women tend to talk more than men, I cannot tell you the number of people, friends that I have, who are so overcome by certain thought patterns, certain problems, and they, they want to, you know, they, they go out, we go out for coffee. Why? How do you get over, like, how do you deal with things? Why can't I have victory? And, and you know, do you ever just want to shake somebody? Just grab them by the shoulders in love and say, the answer is so simple, it's eluding you. You don't have to read books to find out how to be free, save this book alone. And you don't have to follow formulas to learn how to overcome issues. I promise you. Now, I know that the family Christian bookstore will suffer great loss if we all stopped reading all those books, some of them not even Christian, and started reading this book and praying. Now, I know you're going to think, you are nuts, Shelley, you are nuts. You're cr- I, no, I'm not. Well, you know, maybe I am, but that's in other ways. I ask Mrs. Berger that all the time. Something will happen in school, and I'll be like, I'll look at her, and I'll be exasperated by something. You know, just, just totally, right, right, Shannon, just totally knocked out by something that's happened. And I'll look at Mrs. Berger, and I'll go, am I crazy? And she'll go, well, that's not the right question to ask in this context, okay? I know I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy about this. 
I think it's simplicity. It's the simplicity of understanding Jesus Christ. See, it's almost like we're thinking too hard and reading too much. It's the simplicity of Jesus. And that's what you're going to see here in Noah's Ark. So the Bible says that wickedness was everywhere. Now, I want this phrase to be sealed in your mind. And if you want to underline it, it. here's what he says in verse 5. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ooh, that's nasty, right? Okay, so we keep reading. And we go to verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, the word repented there does not mean repentance in the way we mean repentance. When a person has to repent, they have to change their mind and go a different direction. Amen? God can't change his mind and go a different direction. God is immutable. He cannot change because he's perfect. What God does, sometimes in the Bible, anthropomorphisms are used when you ascribe to God human qualities. Like we say God holds us up in his arms. God doesn't have physical arms that he holds us. But we use that anthropomorphism so that we can understand what he's saying. He uses it in his word. And this word repented here is actually what's known as an anthropopathism. Isn't that neat? Don't you love big words? I'm going to start a nerd club in the church, too. I have one in the school, nerd. Nifty Einstein's rule and dominate. Shanna's in it. Okay, so anthropopathism. It's when God uses not a physical quality, but some human-like quality that we could put our mind around to describe what he's feeling. But it doesn't mean he's repented. What it means is he was deeply grieved in his heart. Look at what the Bible says. He, he was grieved at his heart. Now, I don't know about you, but that comforts me. God better be grieved by what happened to man. Sin is grievous. And God is bothered by it. You know, God created the universe and when Adam and Eve sinned and tainted this universe and God had to curse it because of sin, He was grieved at His heart. That was His creation. And God is grieved at sin because sin corrupts everything. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Sin corrupts everything. Do you know... The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, says that all the, the amount of useful energy in the world is going down, that everything is falling apart, that everything is decaying. Do you remember learning that in school? Your body's getting old, buddy. It's going downhill and it is falling apart. The teeth are falling apart. The body's starting to stoop over. The whole world's going to pot. Amen. That's the second law of thermodynamics. That's a scientific law that's a result of the sin curse on mankind and this entire world, by the way. And that grieves, that, that grieves God's heart. Should it? Absolutely. And I want to tell you something. Sin has corrupted your life. Sin has corrupted my life. Sin has, has opened the floodgate of disease and illness into the world. Sin has opened the floodgate of broken relationships and broken hearts into the world. And I don't know what corruption has been brought into your life, not necessarily directly by your own personal sin, but by the sin curse. But I want you to know from Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, that it grieves the heart of God. That when you don't sleep, He doesn't sleep. That when you cry, He cries. Do you understand that? It grieves the heart of God that this wickedness has happened. Some people portray God as He's this big guy up in the sky with a hammer waiting to pound anybody who sins. It's not what I read. I read He's a holy God up in heaven whose heart is broken by the sin curse, who has provided a way out, but will nonetheless, for the sake of those of us who choose Him, one day judge all who refuse to come to him and by fire remake this earth so the floodgates of disease and illness and broken hearts and broken lives can never touch us again. Amen? 
His heart was grieved by it. And verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. I want you to circle that phrase in your Bible, whom I have created. It's not like God was sitting up, okay, I'm going to destroy man now. Who cares? He's bad. No. God says, I'm going to destroy man. And by the way, I know I created him. He's my responsibility. Have you ever thought about that? That's why God sent Jesus Christ. He said, I have created him. Now, I'm going to destroy the man that I have created. And it breaks my heart to do this. But I'm going to destroy him from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, look at this verse. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the Bible does not go, it does not read in this sequence, I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth, man, beast, creeping thing, fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah is a good guy, so I'll save him. What's it say? Noah found grace. How many of you are pretty proud of Noah for what he, what he did? Huh? Listen, the same grace that was upon Noah is the grace that is upon you if you are saved. Do you understand that? See, this is where we as Christians start to miss it. This is where we go off and try to read books written by every Ph.D. under the sun, try to solve our problems. Stop, stop, stop that. When I read these two verses, verses 7 and verse 8, they're they're juxtaposed right against each other. Do you know what I thought? I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. I don't know how many people were on the face of the earth at that time, whether it was hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know how many people were there. But all the people on the face of the whole earth, God looks at the entire earth and says, I'm going to destroy everybody except for eight people. He took time and cared enough for eight people. I picture this giant funnel, you know. There's the whole world and the only people that make it down through are Noah and his family. It reminds me of Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Narrow is the way. Isn't that beautiful how the Old and New Testament hook together? There it is. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way. But I'm going to tell you something. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not many people did, did they? Don't you be surprised as you walk through this world and there aren't many people living like you live. There are not going to be many people loving Jesus Christ in this world. And you just get it in your mind right now. And when I train our teenagers in the high school, I tell them, you just expect it. You're going off to college, Christian or not. And there are going to be all kinds of people there. And they will not, they will not honor or care about Jesus Christ. They will be against Him. And you just better get it in your mind now. But there are a small remnant of people who find grace in God's eyes. And then the Bible says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Now we read about Noah. Some of the stuff we're used to hearing. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now wait, before God tells us he was just and perfect, God told us he found grace. You can only be perfect because of God's grace. But you can be perfect because of God's grace. See, there's the conviction and the comfort. Isn't that weird? You can only be perfect because of God's grace. Thank you, Jesus. That's comforting. But you can be perfect because of God's grace. Ooh. Thank you, Jesus. That's convicting. Perfect here, by the way, does not mean sinless. If you want to make a note in your Bible, the Hebrew word behind perfect there simply means complete unified, whole, integrity. That's what it means. He walked with God. He was just. He was upright. And I like that the Bible doesn't just say he was just and perfect, but the key behind it was he walked with God. You see, walking with Jesus is not religion. 
I don't look at a, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and look at a list of rules and say, man, I follow this today, I'll be a good Christian. No. I wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, hello. Let's walk together today. And with Jesus in my heart, I don't need to look at the rules. I know what the rules are. The rules are in my heart. Isn't that beautiful? And so Noah walked with God. Now, verse 11. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. If you're into note-taking, which I hope you are, I don't like clean Bibles. I like messy Bibles, color and writing in them. But anyway, uh, this is a personal preference. Verse 11 and verse 13, there are two words that you should circle in parallel because the word for corrupt in verse 11 is the same Hebrew word for destroy in verse 13. See, the earth was corrupt, and in verse 13, behold, I will destroy man with the earth. Corrupt and destroy both mean they're decayed or marred. Remember when I talked about second law of thermodynamics? Disintegration is what's behind that. See, everything because of sin is disintegrating. We ought to be warriors of integration. Of course, I like that because I love to teach calculus. You know, there's integrals in calculus. But that's not what I'm talking about here. We ought to be warriors of integration, like hearts that aren't divided, the body of Christ that's not divided. We're looking for wholeness here because the earth had become disintegrated. It was falling apart. And so God said, I'm going to have to destroy man. Now, I want you to go to verse 22. I'm going to skip all the details of what God told Noah, but he gave him instructions on how to make the ark. And basically he said, I want you to make this big wooden vessel. It's going to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high with three levels. Okay? No big deal. That's what I want you to do, Noah, you and your family. And history tells us that Noah probably had servants or employees that he employed in this business as well. But this is what I want you to do. And I love verse 22. It's so simple. But it's like, oh, you put that in one little verse? That's a mouthful. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. God, you really like took that down to the bare minimum, didn't you? Do you realize what's in that verse? So God comes to Noah and says, okay, everybody's corrupt. Nobody believes in me. Everybody's going to mock you and ridicule you. And in the decades it takes you to build the ark, not one person other than your own family is going to believe in what you're doing. Not one person. And I want you to wake up every morning and all you're going to think about is build the ark, build the ark, build the ark. And you're going to build this gargantuan giant ship and everybody's going to look at you like you're the biggest idiot that ever lived. And for decades, that's all I want you to think about. That's all I want you to do. Okay. Thus did Noah. According to all God commanded him, so did he. That's a mouthful. Wait a second. God told Noah, build the ark of safety. Build the ark. Wake up every morning and think about where you're getting the wood. And organize your people to build. And get everything ready to the exact specifications I give you. That took some passion, didn't it? Do you know what God is saying to you? Wake up every morning and build the ark of safety. Find your wood. Find your tools. Organize your people. Never think about anything else save the project God has given you, which is to build your ark of safety. Build your ark of safety. And whoever I tell you to bring aboard your ark of safety, you build it. And that's all I want you to care about. And everybody around you is going to look at you like you have three heads. They're going to mock you and ridicule you. And society is going to make you feel like you just don't fit. And every power in hell is going to come against you. 
so did Missy. According to all God commanded her, so did she. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's a mouthful. That is what God is calling you to do. When I wake up in the morning, I don't really feel like getting up and going to teach a bunch of teenagers Bible every day. And I don't always feel good, you know? There's an overriding passion in my life. God says, Shelly, get up. You're building an ark of safety in my name. And there are people that have got to jump in that ship. And that better be all you're about, come hell or high water. And I mean that literally, because all of hell comes against me. But I am going to build that ship. I am going to live with such passion, such overriding desire to do what God says, that all those problems that you need to go buy books on how to overcome, man, they just kind of fade away. Who has time for that? I don't even have time for that. My mind is so consumed. So did Noah, all God told him to do. That's passion. And I want to tell you something. One of the other guys that had a lot of passion in the Bible was Peter. Some of you know he's one of my favorites. I love Peter because he was like emotionally volatile. And those of you who know me a little bit know I'm just a little bit over the edge. I'm emotionally volatile. Shanna. I'm up and down. And that's the way Peter was. But by the time he writes his epistles, he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, and I love this, 2 Peter chapter 3, the whole thing is about the destruction of this world by fire. Okay? Actually, we should go to this one verse. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because there's a parallel here. I'm, ta- I'm talking to you about Noah's passion. Well, Peter had passion. And what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, he says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, he's talking about Noah's Ark, okay? But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's a verse to study for a while. Just like God judged the world with water one day, you know how he's judging it the second time? Fire. That's literal truth. Don't invest in something that's going to burn to the ground. Rule of thumb. Somebody gives you a cheap house but tells you it's going to burn to the ground in two weeks. Don't buy it. Don't you buy into this world. It's going to burn. It's going to be redeemed into a home of righteousness. Don't you buy into this corruption. And Peter lived with passion. He knew the same thing that Noah did. God's judgment's coming. And Noah, you know, Noah was just foolish enough to believe that if God said he was sending a flood, he was sending a flood. Now you think, you know, people shake their heads. Yeah, you're right. That's true. He didn't. Yeah, we all, I'm shaking my head. Yeah, he did. Well, guess what? God's sending a fire. He's sending a fire. Oh, yeah, we believe it. I know. Yeah, he's sending a fire. Oh, he is. And what are we doing? And do you know how I know we're not doing enough? Because the three closest disciples to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when Jesus took them to the Garden of Gethsemane, after ministering with them for three years and telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, takes them into the garden and says, it's just about here. I'm so overwhelmed with sorrow. I think I'm going to die, Jesus says. Please pray with me. Eternity is about to change. I'm about to go and do what I said I was going to do. And he comes back and he hones in on Peter. And he says, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Peter! And he's, you know, I I just picture him shaking Peter. Peter! Your spirit is so willing, but your flesh is so weak. And we think, oh, those dirty, rotten disciples. How could they fall asleep? Jesus was about to die on the cross. Oh, I'm getting fired up. I mean, I really am right now. I'm like, Ugh. well, you know what? Do you know what? Jesus is about to come the second time. Duh. And what are we doing as the church? Sitting in front of the television set. Listening to music we shouldn't be listening to. Watching things we shouldn't see. And even if it's not something. 
anything bad. I don't even care if you're watching Andy Griffith, which I personally love. If you're watching Andy Griffith reruns, when you should be reading your Bible and praying through, you are in sin. You are in sin. You are asleep. And the flesh is pulling you down. So when we read this in Noah's day, I want you to think about Noah the way you think about Peter, for example. This is no flimsy little story about a flood. This is serious historical truth. And Noah believed the flood was coming. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Do you know what makes me wake up every morning and go teach those teenagers the Bible, even when they look at me like they're about to fall asleep or have hate in their eyes because of the math homework I gave them? Do you know what motivates me? I look at them and I see them as souls. I swear I do not see them as anything but souls. I look right through them and I see a soul and I think Jesus could come back tomorrow. What have I modeled to these kids? Do you understand? You've got to live with that kind of passion. If that is how you wake up, if that is how you live, don't you worry about A, B, C, steps to overcoming B, D, blah, blah, blah. You will need it. You need the passion of God in your soul. This is historical reality, and it is historical reality that history is about to end. Time is about to end. Anyway, okay. Chapter 7, verse 19. Moving on towards the end here. And the waters, chapter 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. Now, okay. You know, when I first got married, I told my husband, I want to collect Noah's Ark memorabilia. (laughs) Okay, so he bought me stuff, and my friends bought me stuff, and then my little nephew Noah came along, and his name's Noah, so he decorated his room with Noah's Ark stuff. Now, I'm kind of being funny, but I'm kind of not. I got convicted about that, and I'm going to tell you why, and you can think I'm crazy, and I know that I am kind of, but listen to this. I think that the way the world markets Noah's Ark items is used by Satan. And I told my students, right, Shanna? One day, when I get ready to make the big money, similar to what I make now teaching here, um, what I'm going to do is market the real Noah's Ark. And I'm not really being funny here, but I want to make a point. If you look at Noah's Ark items that people sell to decorate rooms and stuff, what do you see? You see a nice little ark, and there's water, you know, lapping up around the ark, and maybe you see some fish heads coming out, you know, fish are waving. And then you look at the ark, and up at the top, there's Noah and his wife, heads fully out of the ark, and they're standing at the top going, and some giraffes are sticking their heads up beside them. Am I right? Am I crazy? And there's a rhinoceros out the side and everybody's going, and they're waving out the top of the ark. That is so wrong. And it has portrayed an image of a historical fact that is completely wrong. Now again, I kind of try to be funny when I'm saying this, but I'm deadly serious. If I were going to market the real Noah's Ark, now these would sell big at Walmart. So if you want to go in with me, if you're ready to invest, okay, the real Noah's Ark. So here's what I'm going to sell for the little kids' rooms. Pictures of the big boat, as it really probably looked. Water lapping around the edges. No Noah and his wife sticking their heads out the windows, waving with smiles. No giraffe up out the roof. But instead, in the water, there are going to be giant rocks and mountaintops. There are going to be people dashed against stones. Blood everywhere because their heads have been split open. There are going to be arms waving, grabbing at the ark. And mine will even come with sounds of screams as mothers watch their children die and grandparents cling to treetops when the water continues to come and dead bodies are all around. And Noah's up at the window, and he's crying. And the giraffes can't even look at the sight. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? That's Noah's Ark. Seal that in your mind. And don't play the games that the world plays with these stories. Because if the devil can get you to believe that that's what Noah's Ark was like, you won't think much of the second coming of Christ. But I am here to tell you something. When Jesus Christ returns, it is going to be wrath and death and destruction heretofore unknown. And we better get serious. Because the Bible says those waters kept coming until they were over the mountaintops. And anybody who was clinging to treetops or climbing mountains finally realized as they screamed in horror, this is not going to recede. And it was too late. Because God shut the door. God shut the door. Noah built the ark and God shut the door. You build the ark of safety and when it's time, God will shut the door. And I want to tell you something. Verse 23 is so comforting. Every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. When God shut the door of the ark, guess what he did? He sealed death for everyone outside. But wait a second. He sealed life for everyone inside. And Jesus Christ has sealed life for every one of you who will find yourself in the ark of safety. And that's why when you pass from this world into the next, you're not gone. You're in the ark of safety. Life is sealed for you. Last point, verse 20 of chapter 8. And here's where I told you I had that revelation a couple years ago, or maybe it was a couple months ago, I don't know. Ten years ago, two years ago. Okay, um, and Noah builded an altar. Now, he gets off the ark, okay? The waters recede, and Noah's getting off the ark. And the Bible says in verse 20, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. Now, when I taught on Abraham a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, I told you the burnt offering was an offering where the animal was slain, the blood was put on the altar, and then the whole body was burnt. Representative of the fact that we were to give everything to Jesus. And when Noah burnt these animals on the altar, when he burnt the flesh of the animals, the Bible says to God that was a sweet savor. can't even handle roadkill. Why would... I, I wrote in my Bible, how odd... This kind of rhymes, is God. How odd is God to think that is a sweet savor? Well, let me ask you a question. How odd is God to be pleased to watch His Son die on a cross How odd is the prince of life to let himself die? It's a paradox. But do you know why that savor was sweet to God? I look back at the death of Jesus for my hope. Noah looked forward. And the only reason that was a sweet savor to God was because God had commanded his people in the Old Testament, you make the animal sacrifices. This will appease me until the ultimate sacrifice comes. And I am standing here to tell you something you may have never thought of before. Noah walked with Jesus. Noah loved Jesus. Noah believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why when he got off the ark, he offered this sacrifice. 
But here is the amazing thing. Now read with me and hold on to your seats because you remember in chapter 6, why did God flood the world and destroy the whole thing? Are you really holding on to your seat, Gamal? I said, hold on to your seat. I saw somebody grab their seat. Okay, listen. Remember in chapter 6, why did God destroy the whole world with a flood? Because every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. Okay, now check this out. Now, I, I, try to, you know, I try to build up to big moments. Am I building up good? Yeah. Listen. Who's left on the earth now? The flood's already happened. How many people are on the earth now? Eight people. Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham and Japheth and the Mrs. That's how you say it, plural. There they are. There's eight people on the earth. Noah and his family. They're the only people left. Am I right or am I wrong? I'm right. Now, he destroyed the earth the first time because every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. But Noah, man, he was a good guy, right? Watch this. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who is God talking about there? Noah and his family. They're the only people left. Did you ever realize that was in there? We always want to say, well, God flooded the world and killed all those bad, bad people because they were at evil, evil hearts. Yeah, he did. So why did he save Noah? Because as soon as Noah got off the ship, God said, every inclination of Noah and his family's heart is evil from his youth. What was the difference? Why did God spare Noah if he said the exact same thing about him as he said about the whole world he just got done killing off? What was the difference? The only difference was Noah and the sacrifice. The sacrifice after he got off the ark was evidence that Noah believed in the coming of who? Jesus. Noah believed Jesus was coming. God, I don't know how you're going to do it because I'm not in the future, but you've promised you're sending the Messiah. And I believe it, God. And that's what saved Noah. And don't you ever believe he was saved because he was a better man or a better woman than you are. God saved Noah because Noah believed in Jesus. Is that freeing or what? And where did Noah get the passion to build that ark for decades? Noah believed in Jesus. That was the only difference. And God said, never again will I do this. As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. But here's the key word. While the earth remaineth, the seasons will continue. But guess what? The earth won't always remain. There is so much in this story. But I want you to settle in for a minute. I want to refresh your memory. I want to go over a few thoughts here. Number one, judgment is coming in real time and space. This is not off in some la-la land. Jesus is coming back to this earth. He's going to destroy it by fire. And you better be building your ark of safety. And that better be all you're about, day and night. Number two, if you believe in Jesus Christ like Noah did, you are saved and you are empowered with everything you need to live a life of passion. Are you with me? Sometimes as Christians, and I feel the Holy Spirit wants to say this, sometimes as Christians, we are too consumed in looking at the things by which we don't measure up. We're too focused on the problems and the struggles that we have. And what God is saying is, get your eyes on me. Realize how big Jesus is and how big His grace is. And these things will fall into place. Do you understand? I'm not giving you some giant intellectual philosophical answer 
to how to overcome in your life. I am giving you the reality of the historical risen Jesus Christ whom Noah believed in that enabled him for decades of his life to suffer endlessly and live with passion and say no to sin. You struggle with the sin? Look to Jesus. The devil telling you you aren't good enough? Tell him you're right. I'm not. But Darcy found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Right? Darcy found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Darcy is enabled to live with the passion that comes as she builds her ark of safety. For the sure day, judgment will fall. That is all we need to live. For a while, put the books away. For a while, put the tapes away. For a while, get in the presence of Jesus Christ the King. For a while, look at the scriptures and see you can build your ark if you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. His grace is big enough. His justice was big enough to flood the entire world and destroy everything that lived, but His grace was large enough to save those who would believe in Him. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, we need your grace. We need the passion that comes from you. Noah looked ahead and believed that much. And we have the history behind us, and how much do we believe? Noah believed in judgment so many thousands of years ago and how much closer is the second coming of Christ. God, help us. God, help us. God, forgive us for what we have done. God, have mercy on us for who we have been. God, have mercy on our minds for what we have believed will help us. There is only one who can help us. There is one all-consuming passion that will wash away our sins and enable us to overcome. I don't care how deep and dark and how many times that sin rears its ugly head. Jesus, 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 Lord, we, we need you that we would build our ark in today's world. God, help us. God, help us. We mean it. We don't say that as a cliche. I mean it with all my heart. God, come into this sanctuary and help us. Help us, God. For everyone who needs reassured that your sins are forgiven, Jesus, the sweet savor God smells is the sacrifice of His perfect Lamb. And that is the reason that you are saved. Don't you let the devil tell you you're not okay because you're not good enough. You are not good enough. The only thing God sees is the sacrifice of His Son over your life. You must rise up 
and live as God has called you to live because God's grace is infinitely powerful in your life. And for those of you who are struggling with that, I want you to meditate on this story of Noah for the coming week. And I want you to read that scripture and I want you to remember that the sweet savor, the only difference between Noah and the rest of the world was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the devil cannot take that away from you. And as you live, You live with the power of the resurrected Christ. And you wake up in the morning and you fix your eyes on the fact, the historical fact that Jesus is coming soon. And you be consumed with the passion of building your ark of safety. No matter who comes against you, you live as Jesus told you to live. And you build that ark. And God will honor you And He will enable you by the power of His Holy Spirit to overcome that sin. We love you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, for who you are. Dear God, have mercy on us. Change us from the inside. Dear God, let us look at your holy word and all of the historical accounts in it as the truth. Let us get every bit from it, every bit of strength you've meant for us to get and invigorate us as a church. We want to be revived. We want to live. We want to overcome. We want to act with passion on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I am believing, I am foolish enough to believe that right now this evening you have done it by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. All we need is you. All we need is you. All we need is the sweet savor of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And may we rise tomorrow with the passion to build our ark of safety for all who would enter in. In Jesus' name.